Good morning, everybody. Good to see you again. My name is still Paul, uh, and uh, it's, it's, we're glad that you're here. Now, you may not know this by uh, just looking at me, but I was actually really good at basketball. I, don't, I say I was because, yeah. Uh, hey, Jared, can you turn it down just a smidge? It's ringing up here on me. Thank you. There we go. Uh, I was really good at basketball. I say was because I haven't played very much at all in years, although I threatened my son Andrew that I'm going to play with his friends pretty soon, so we'll see if that actually happens. But one of my favorite things to do in high school and college was to go to local playgrounds and try to get involved in a game or like a local like public gym or something like that. And the reason I liked that is because you couldn't tell by looking at me that I was any good. And so I was often underestimated when I came to the gym. And I would go to these gyms where nobody knew me, and I don't know if you know how this stuff works, but uh, it's, it's really kind of tough to get into a game if no one knows you and they don't think you're any good. You're supposed to call next, and then someone will say, well, no, I have next, and then someone says, well, I have next after that, so I guess you have next after next. And so you sit there for 20, 30 minutes each game waiting to see if they're going to honor your chance to go next. Well... While I was waiting, while I was trying to get into one of these games, I would analyze the competition, right? You kind of want to know what's going on. Because what happens is if you win, you stay. And whoever has next puts their team together, and they go against the guys that just won. And so if you keep winning, you get to just keep playing. Well, what you inevitably find is there's kind of these guys that kind of own that court, or at least they think they do. This is my court. I'm going to stay on here as long as I want to until I get tired enough to leave. And so they'll just keep playing and playing and winning and winning. Well, I would like to kind of figure out who the, the main competition was. And then when I finally got in the game, I would make sure I got matched up with that person. Now, you can imagine what they would say. I grew up in Austin, pretty big city, very diverse and uh, I was often derided on the basketball court, made fun of. We called it trash talk, right? This guy can't hold me. Come on, give me the ball. I'm going to score on this guy every time. That was my favorite thing to hear, right? Because I knew they were underestimating me. And so what would often happen is I would not say a word. I would let my basketball speak for itself. And the best revenge of all was when they would trade, take turns trying to guard me. They'd be like, you can't guard him, let me try. You, after I've made like seven or eight points in a row. You can't guard him, let me try. You can't guard him, let me try. And the trash talk would suddenly change uh, where they were like yelling at each other. We would play to 15 by ones and twos, and it wouldn't be unusual for me to have 11 or 12 of the 15 points. Uh, and so by the end, and it was really fun to send those uh, guys that thought they owned that court on their way so that they had to wait for the next, next, next game to get back in, right? So trash talk was kind of part of my life, but I like to let my game speak for itself. If you're actually good enough to impact the game and help your team win, the results are going to speak for themselves, right? You don't have to say a word. Well, our series is called Say What?, Right? As Preston said last week, I love the way he practiced and said that. Say what? And we're looking at things in the Bible that might surprise some of us. And we're going to look in 1 Kings 18 today. And you're going to actually see that there is a trash-talking prophet in the Bible. 
there's a trash-talking prophet, at least one, that we're going to look at today. And his name's Elijah, and it happens in the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Uh, now, I'm going to read this whole thing because I don't want to leave anything out. But before we dive into it, I want to pray, and, and I hope that God speaks to you today as we see Elijah, the trash-talking prophet, going up against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to see some uh, real-life situations play out. Uh, we thank you for the challenge that we're going to read today. We thank you for the miracle that you did by showing up in such a mighty way in this showdown. And God, I pray that our hearts would be open to how you want to speak, how you want to teach, how you want to change us today as a result of interacting with this passage. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, before we jump right into the story, I want to give you some um, historical background to kind of set the stage. And uh, after the death of King Solomon, so you had the, the three major kings, you had the death of King Solomon, the kingdom of Israel went through this kind of terrible civil war. And this conflict led to the split between the north and the south, Israel and Judah. There's now a divided kingdom, okay? And on top of this, there's a series of wicked kings that led Israel astray, and they, they lead them to embrace the worship of these other traditions, these other gods. And the latest corrupt king that takes center stage in our story today is King Ahab. And King Ahab was married to the infamous evil queen Jezebel. All right? Evil Jezebel. She was a devout worshiper of Baal, the Canaanite god of rain and storms, and God sent the prophet Elijah to call out God's people and draw them back to his way, all right? So Jezebel was trying to infuse her worship of Baal into the traditions of the people and kind of having all of it mixed up together. And Elijah, in direct conflict with Baal, declares that God would not allow it to rain until Elijah said so. He said, God told me it's not going to rain until he tells me to tell you it's going to rain, okay? This lasted for three years. So you can see why King Ahab might not be super thrilled with Elijah. He might not have the most positive outlook toward Elijah. He allowed his wife Jezebel to actively seek out and kill the prophets of God, but mainly they were going for Elijah and they never could get him. They kept going after the prophets to get Elijah and they never could. So God tells Elijah after these three years to present himself to Ahab that's kind of scary. He's, he's been hunting him down. But he says, no, go present yourself to Ahab and let him know that I'm going to make it rain, but I want you to do something first. I want you to have a little showdown. I want you to show the nation of Israel once again that I am the one true God. And what a showdown it turns out to be. So Elijah says, let's get the entire nation of Israel together. It's no small thing. They're at Mount Carmel. At Mount Carmel, there's a big, wide meadow, so a lot of people can gather in this area and look up and see the things that are happening, almost like it's a, uh, an amphitheater kind of situation, and so they can see all the events that are about to take place. And let's be sure we have a clear picture here of what Elijah is up against. He's the only prophet of God, the one, Elijah. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel have 450 prophets of Baal. And they have an additional 400 prophets of Asherah that are kind of there in support. All right? So they've got 850 against one. And God's people, again, they'd incorporated parts of this pagan worship into their practices. They're trying to blend the two 
and kind of have the best of both worlds. They're thinking they can take parts from both and find a new path that's right for them and their culture and their circumstance. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, kind of sounds like our own culture and circumstance. Let's blend all this stuff together so we can find a new and better path. God says, no, let's stick to my path. And let me show you that I'm the one true God. So here we are at Mount Carmel. Everyone's gathered together. The people of Israel are watching as Elijah goes up against these pagan prophets. Ahab and Jezebel are looking on, eager to end his life as soon as possible. No pressure at all. Right? We'll see how it goes. 1 Kings 18, verses 20 through 40. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. That's the trash talk moment right there. (laughs) And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them 
And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. So it's always a little tricky to preach a narrative passage, right? Because it's, it's telling a story. It's relaying an event. But there's several important truths here to emphasize, I think, from this encounter. And right off the bat, we see the first thing. When Elijah declares the issue causing the need for this showdown, he says in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. Now remember, the people of Israel have gone along with Jezebel's attempt to infuse their worship with her pagan practices. It started off with they were kind of afraid, and so they went along with the queen. But then it, it became this kind of thing where they're like, well, maybe we can take some good from this and mix it with this. Uh, they're trying to walk the line between both sides in fear for their life, taking some of what she's selling, and then hoping God is kind of still on their side too. But Elijah straight up calls them out on it right at the start, and he calls it limping. It reminds me of what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you won't go one way or the other. Elijah says, you're limping. Jesus says, you're sickening. And it reminds me of a lot of so-called Christians today, when we want to follow the cultural shifts, the opinions of the majority to see what we can gain or how we can stay out of trouble or keep people from being upset with us um, because of the fear of maybe being rejected, but hoping that God's okay with a little bit of other stuff mixed in with our worship of him. Elijah leaves really no room for nuance, no room for debate. Jesus leaves no room for nuance. No room for debate. He says, if the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal or whatever the latest cultural shift pushes on us is, then follow that. But quit trying to walk the line between the two. Quit limping. You can't live your life halfway between God and idols. You can't be wishy-washy. You can't be indecisive. It's really interesting he uses the word limp here to describe the indecisiveness. It's the same word he uses again in verse 26, later in the uh, account, to describe the movements of the prophets as they desperately try to get Baal to show up, right? There, he says they're limping around the altar, trying to get Baal to show up. It's a picture of being lame, of being not able to function fully. And the parallel usage there is no accident. If you try to get your meaning, your worth, your purpose from anything other than the one true God, you will be spiritually lame all your life. If you try to get your meaning, your worth, your purpose from anything other than God, you will be spiritually lame. You will not be able to function at the full capacity that he has designed for you to experience in him. The abundant life that he promises you through his son, Jesus. So, Israel was weakened because they turned away from God. They turned to idols. Elijah sets up this showdown with an ultimatum. He says, serve whichever God shows up. The trash talk has begun, but Elijah can back it up. And the next point of emphasis in the encounter is that the odds are stacked against Elijah. 
They are completely stacked against him. In verse 22, he points it out himself. He says, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And don't forget, we know from earlier in the chapter, there's these additional 400 supporting prophets that Jezebel has waiting in the wings. Um, some of my favorite movies are true sports movies where the underdog somehow makes a play or, or you know, wins the championship. One of my all-time favorites is the movie Hoosiers, which is based on a true story about a tiny little high school in Indiana. You know, nowadays they have divisions for high schools, so the little tiny high schools, they don't play the ones that have 2,000 students because of the inequity of that competition, right? So there's this range of big schools that play each other and the smaller schools play each other. Well, at this time in Indiana, that wasn't true. So if you were the tiny school from Hickory, Indiana, you still had to play the giant school from Indianapolis for the championship. And so this movie's been out, you know, several decades, so I'm going to spoil it if you haven't seen it. You're a little late to the party. But um, so this tiny town in Indiana, Hickory, Indiana, and they have this one particular player named Jimmy Chitwood. Jimmy Chitwood, all he ever does is shoot baskets and play basketball, right? And so he's really good. Well, they, you know, the story is long and there's all this drama, but they end up winning and winning and winning and getting to the championship game, playing against one of the huge high schools from the capital city. And it comes down to the final play. And the coach is drawing up a play for someone. He's going to use Jimmy Chitwood as a decoy and let someone else take the final shot. And everyone kind of is uncomfortable. And they look at each other. And they all look at Jimmy. And Jimmy looks at the coach and says, I'll make it. And the coach says, okay, all right, well, get it to Jimmy. And so that ends up happening. Jimmy, even though they were completely an underdog, Jimmy Chitwood takes the final shot, they win. And it's a true story. I don't like these sports stories when they're not true because anyone can write something, but the true stories are often better than fiction. So this tiny town, Hickory, wins the state championship. Completely outmatched, but they were able to win. I can't tell you how many times I've enacted that scene over and over for myself. Paul Ingram takes the shot, you know. Uh, anyway, so by appearances and by the numbers, in this situation, Elijah is definitely the underdog. All right? He's the Hickory, Indiana of this moment. But he has confidence in the power of God and the fact that God is not going to let him down. He says, it's going to happen. God's going to show up. Just like Jimmy said, I'm going to make it. God is going to show up. So think about how many times the odds seem to be stacked against God's people. You've got the army of Gideon. Right, The 300 men going against thousands. You've got the Israelites at Jericho where they walked around the city and the walls fell. You've got the teenager David with a sling versus the giant Goliath. You've got a small ragtag group of scared disciples versus the Roman government. And here, Elijah against all these prophets. Elijah knew the people of Israel needed a wake-up call, and God knew just how to send the message. Now, not only are the odds stocked against stacked against Elijah, but he creates an even further disadvantage by how the challenge proceeds, right? Did you catch the difference between the Baal altar and Elijah's altar? The prophets of Baal had every advantage. They went first. They had unlimited time. They got to pick the bull. They got to pick the altar. They got to pick the wood. They were in the majority. They had the support of the leadership. 
but they lacked the most important thing for victory in this showdown. They did not serve the one true God. And it points directly back to Elijah's opening question. It's a really great setup. If the Lord is God, then serve him. The word hustle almost comes to mind. It's like he's hustling them, right? Because he knows what's going to happen. One of my favorite things to do when we would go to these parks sometimes is I would play left-handed. I'd play left-handed until I got added to a team. Well, I'm right-handed. So naturally, when I'm playing left-handed, I don't look like I can play very well. And so a friend of mine, we would go and play left-handed for a while until somebody felt bold enough to say, hey, you guys want to play a game? And they're thinking they were going to kill us, but we kind of set them up. As soon as the game starts, we switch to our right hands, and it's a totally different experience that way. I feel like Elijah is kind of doing this. He's got them set up right where he wants them. If the Lord is God, then serve him. If Baal, then serve him. But make a choice and follow it with conviction. And as these prophets go on ranting and dancing and cutting themselves to get Baal to listen and respond, we see there's this trash talk that we pointed out as we read the passage. Elijah is simply pointing out the futility of trying to get a response from a false god. In verse 27, he says again, At noon, Elijah mocked them. So it's been several hours at this point, saying, cry aloud, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Don't you just love that? Elijah's my kind of dude, <laughs> right? It's like, maybe he's asleep. Uh, straight up mocking them for the worthless waste of time and the deception that these prophets have been perpetrating on God's people. Elijah has no patience for the nonsense that the prophets are displaying and using to deceive God's people. Remember, it hasn't rained in over three years because Elijah said it wouldn't at God's direction. And these prophets worship the God of rain and storms. So you'd think at some point over these three years, they would have learned the futility of what they were doing. The futility of their worship would be evident. You'd think they might have woken up and realized that they're headed in the wrong direction, worshiping the wrong thing. But no, it took God, through his prophet Elijah, to bring about this confrontation to create this opportunity for the obvious to be shown for all. And with every advantage, the prophets of Baal eventually give up, having generated no results, not even the smallest manifestation of power, not even a spark. And then it's Elijah's turn. It's God's turn. And the very first thing he does is really significant. He rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. Again, remember, this is to wake the people up, to show them that you need to go God's way, not this mixture, not trying to take the, the best of both worlds. Follow God obediently. The kingdom was divided. It was fractured. The altar was broken, and it symbolized the connection the people had with God. And he takes the time to rebuild it with 12 stones, representing the full, united kingdom of Israel. Reminding everyone it's their choice that they moved away from God and let their hearts wander. It's their selfishness, their idolatry that's divided the kingdom in this civil war. And he not only rebuilds the altar, altar, but he has a trench dug around it and he fills it with water. And he has so much water brought that he ends up drenching the entire thing and the trench fills up from the overflow of all the water that he pours on it. There's no chance that what is about to happen could be credited to any trick or any chance or anything other than the supernatural power of God. All doubt was removed. 
absolutely, God is about to show up. And as the time comes for Elijah to ask God to respond and light the altar, he doesn't start chanting and dancing and putting on a big display. He isn't putting on an elaborate show and drawing attention to himself. He kneels and he speaks to God personally in prayer. And listen to his prayer again in verses 36 and 37. He says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Did you catch that last little part? That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah wasn't looking to be a hero. He wasn't looking to be celebrated as the winner on this day. He wanted all the credit, all the honor, all the worship to be directed at the only rightful place on God. The people would turn back to God, not because they weighed the options and chose the one that made the most sense. They would not turn back to God because of the failure of Baal. They would not turn back to God for any reason other than he is the one true God. And because of how he shows up, everyone's going to know it. God was turning their hearts back. God was in control of the showdown. God told Elijah to do it. God loved and pursued his people time and time again despite their failures. And Elijah simply asked him to let the people see him in that moment. And how did God respond? Well, he left no doubt. Right? The fire was so hot, it consumed everything. Even the stones of the altar itself were burned up that Elijah had stacked to rebuild the altar. Even the water in the trench disappeared instantly from the heat. And the people answered the question, If the Lord is God, then serve him by saying, The Lord, he is God. Well, duh, right? <laughs> the Lord, he is God. And the showdown ends with a reminder of how serious God takes sin as the prophets of Baal were immediately seized and executed as punishment for how they led God's people astray. Can you believe that's actually in the Bible, all that? What an incredible showdown. It's an incredible story, but what does it have to do with us? Right? The question Elijah poses to Israel at the beginning, I think, echoes with relevance in our culture today. Imagine yourself seated in that meadow with all your fellow Carson City, Carson Valley residents. You're not sure what's about to happen, but you know Elijah. You know he's a prophet. You know he speaks for God. And he stands up and says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. You know, so much of our time and our lives is wasted limping around. We think we're the exception, don't we? We think God will be okay with how we mix worship of him with worldliness, with pride, with materialism, with selfishness, with cultural shifts in opinion and practice. And we're living lame. We're closer to the prophets of Baal limping around the altar after hours of meaningless fanaticism. If the Lord is God, then follow him. Stop trusting that you can have, have it both ways. Stop thinking you can have it both ways. If the Lord is God, then follow him. Another thing we can identify with here is the feeling of being the underdog, 
right, of being outnumbered. We saw the odds were stacked against Elijah. We feel today that truly following God, standing for his ways, puts us in the minority. Sometimes it might even feel like taking a stand would put you all alone, attacked, maybe even put your job or your livelihood in jeopardy. But know this, that God stands with the faithful. God stands with the faithful. God backs the underdog that is truly following him, and God will show up. Notice how Elijah reaches out to God again. He doesn't shout. He doesn't put on a big display. He kneels in prayer and faithfully asks God just to show himself. Show them who you are again. Remind them who you are. You know, in our culture today, it seems like we're involved in one showdown after another. One showdown after another. Between faithfully following the truth and the ways of God or bowing to the pressure of the culture. You know, this passage today, it's, it's written in our modern context in people's lives over and over. It's happening over and over as we are daily forced to decide where our allegiance, where our worship, where our faith will truly reside. And we have to be vigilant that we are not limping between two opinions. Again, picture yourself in that meadow being challenged. If the Lord is God, then follow him. Declare like the Israelites, the Lord, he is God. So when the world tells you that it's no big deal to compromise, when deceit comes to twist and confront your walk with God, when you're fear, fearful you might end up all alone, do not limp, do not live lame, push back and remember that God determines what is right and wrong, not us. Jesus, Jesus doesn't just determine the truth, Jesus is the truth. God is in control of the showdowns. This is important. It's not our job to win. It's not our job to win. It's our job to be faithful. It's our job to be obedient. It's our job to trust the results to God, to let people see him, not us, not our manipulations, not just our opinions, but our faithfulness to him so that they can see him. The results, the honor, and the glory are his not ours. So let Elijah's challenge echo in your mind and your heart, whatever you may face. If the Lord is God, then serve him and know that he shows up for the faithful underdog. No trash talk needed. <laughs> Let's pray together. God, I just thank you for what we can see and what we can learn uh, from this moment in the history of your people. And God, I do pray for our hearts. I pray for our disposition. I pray for our, our witness. Because, God, it does feel like we're in a showdown day after day. And it does sometimes lead to us wanting to win versus wanting to be faithful. And so, God, I just pray that we remember the true battle is between you and the enemy. We're not a part of the us and them. God, let us be faithful to you and trust the results to you and let all the honor and glory and praise go to you. I do pray for our culture. I pray for the church. I pray for your followers that we would be found faithful, that we would represent you and your love and your ways and your truth. 
that we would not allow compromise to enter our hearts and our lives, but we would know, just like the Israelites knew after they saw you show up and send fire to that altar, that you are God. And if you're God, we want to serve you and you alone. God, if anyone is here today that maybe doesn't know you, maybe today would be the day they say, I need God. I believe he's God. I want to serve him, and I want to know what it means to have him as my Savior, uh, to have his son forgive me through what he did on the cross. God, I pray they would have the courage to, uh, to seek someone out, to fill out the Connect card, to come to the back of the room and be prayed for. Whatever you may lead them to do, that they would do that today. To, to have that connection, that response to you. God, for everyone else, maybe there's some way we, we've seen that we're kind of being wishy-washy, indecisive, not being obedient. God, I pray that you would convict us, show us, and that we would say yes to however you want to adjust how we're living and how we're representing you. God, we love you. We praise you today in Jesus' name.